welcome back. Good to see y'all here tonight. So weather going to move in at some point. I'll actually be glad if we get a little rain. Hopefully we don't get any more than that, um, but it's possible. Um, hey, so yeah, I did want to push uh, or promote again Peter J. Williams, um, who we've had in here on a Sunday night before from Cambridge, England, who actually lectures at Cambridge University and is the principal, which is the CEO of Tyndale House, and they do all sorts of great things there, and if you've heard him, you know he's very good, and he's written a lot of books, and actually been on translation committees for English translations and things like that, but he'll be here Saturday morning for breakfast. It'll be roughly 8 to 9. I think the bulletin says 8 to 10, but honestly, it's not going to be 8 to 10. It's going to be 8 to 9, pretty much, uh, over in the fellowship hall, and you need to sign up for that so we know how many eggs to scramble, um, but I think that's going to be good, and and Jack Hodge told me, and he has a bunch of different talks that he does, and, and one of them is basically on the, the contradictions in the Bible that, that a lot of your uh, atheist friends will point to, like, you can't believe that, it's got contradictions. I mean, this says this many women went to the tomb, and this says this, especially around Easter. And so he's going to take that and, and work through some of those contradictions with us and kind of uh, in an interactive presentation I think will be really enjoyable. So... So that will be good if you're able to do that Saturday morning. Isaac Watts, that was the first song, huh? Marching to Zion. Um, that guy is amazing. So I've got a book of his songs from like 1771, and it is packed. Of course, they don't have notes. There's no music in these books. It's just words. But he wrote thousands of hymns. Some of them were very good. I'm sure in those thousands, some of them weren't as good. But that is one of those, it's amazing that we're still singing that so many years later. All right. Um, a while back, it's probably been five or six years, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who, who he's a Latino guy, and he speaks Spanish as his language, and of course I speak English as my main language, and, and his English isn't that great, and my Span his English is way better than my Spanish, I'll put it that way. But I do speak Portuguese. And so we got together for lunch, and we did what we do, which is we speak Portuguese. We speak a mixture of Espanol and Portuguese, and it works out pretty well. But we were over here across the street at Spring Creek Barbecue, and he had, I don't know what I had ordered, but he had ordered the barbecued ribs. And in the middle of lunch, he just said, wow, these, these ribs are esquisito. And I was like, esquisito? In, in, in Portuguese, esquisito means Creepy. I mean, the best case scenario, you could translate it as strange or weird, but it also kind of has a creepy or eerie quality to it. Esquisito. So he's calling, he's calling his ribs esquisito. And I'm like, so I said, whoa. I said, what's wrong with your ribs? He said, no, they're esquisito. And I was like, exquisite. It doesn't mean that in Portuguese, but it does mean that in Spanish. And that's one of the problems when two languages are that close you can fall into the trap of thinking, oh, yeah, we can totally understand each other. And every once in a while, you hit a pothole there, and it's like, wait a second, I don't think, I don't think you were calling your ribs creepy. All right? I, I don't think that's what you meant. But it reminded me that, um, that as humans, wherever we're from, we have difficulties communicating. And you may even speak the same language as someone like your teenager and not being able to communicate well with, with that person. Um, and if you travel much, and, and a lot of us do, 
and you get out where other languages are being spoken and you're reading a, a road sign or some, a, a plaque in a museum or a menu at a restaurant and you find that things can get lost in translation, right? I mean, things are... Someone is making an effort to translate this into your language, but the effort is not is not producing a very clear piece of communication, right? And so, just a couple of images, and we actually took one out, didn't we, John Scott? <laughs> that didn't seem like maybe we should show that on a Sunday night. So, a couple that made, made it through. This one, um, I don't think they meant this. Right? I, I, I think this is probably a dog track or uh, a track and field, like tra- or a race car, maybe, track, but I don't think they meant racist park, Right? I do not believe they, that's what's intended there, but something got lost as they turned it into English, right? Or this, this next one is um, a manicure set. Now, my toenails are pretty bad, so maybe that's actually what you would need to, to do a manicure on my toenails. But, but I mean, that does not look like that would go over a box knife, a screwdriver, and a pair of pliers translated manicure set, right? Um, you might end up in the ER if you try to use that to, to trim your nails. But believe it or not, there is actually a point to all of this. Um, you know, language is not the only place where translation becomes a problem for people. Um, there are, it's not the only place where there are a variety of languages spoken. There are love languages as well um, and actually, the other night at our, um, our date night, uh, Chris and Stacy actually referenced this book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Um, it's this idea that there are also languages that we are fluent in, in giving and receiving love, and usually there are languages of love that we're not fluent in. And so he kind of works with, with this idea in learning to express love to someone or care for someone, you need to know, if you're close to them, you need to know what their love language is. And generally, we're, we're like really fluent in one love language and maybe a second one, but usually it doesn't go much beyond that. And so his New York Times bestseller, The Five Love Languages, uh, Gary names the five principal love languages in the world. And basically, before we get, we'll just kind of get to those quickly it is how you feel loved, right? And how you express love to someone else. So here they are, um, words of affirmation. You feel loved when someone just says nice things about you or tells you what a great guy you are or writes you a note or, or sends you a, a card for Valentine's Day that's got all this beautiful stuff written and you feel so loved. For someone else, it's like, those are just words. You know, I need some a quality time. Spending time with me, that's how I feel loved, or that's how I show love. I spend time with you. Look, I love you. Look at how much time I'm spending with you. Or uh, receiving gifts. Some people, that's their language. You know, that's how they communicate love to one another is, look at this expensive gift or this thoughtful gift that I gave you. Or, oh, you gave me this. Oh, I feel so loved. I feel so appreciated. Other people, it's like, you know, I'll just say for my wife and I, gifts, they don't, we give gifts, but we, neither one of us, that's, that's neither one of our love languages, so it's not a big deal to us. Acts of service, and of course, physical touch. Um, those are the different five love languages. And so, 
coming up on Sunday nights. Now, this could be for marriage couples, married couples. Uh, this could really be uh, something that you target at, at parents showing love to their children. But we're going to kind of broaden this out to anyone that you have a fairly close relationship with or want to uh, and talk about what it means to be Jesus to people in, in, in identifying their love languages and helping connect with them without your love getting lost in translation, so to speak. So let's start with this basic idea. I think it's an, a relatively uncontroversial idea for disciples of Jesus Christ, the idea that love matters supremely to God, that it is at the top uh, in terms of what God expects from us as a people, in terms of our characters, is being a people who love. Um, so love, utmost importance to Jesus Christ, don't think that's something that could be debated a whole lot. Uh, I don't think that's someone, something we would pick a fight on. In fact, just one of many places that Jesus addresses this is in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, and you remember this conversation. I'm sure you do, but let's, let's refresh ourselves. Matthew 22, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, got together. These are legal experts. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So it's kind of a test here. Teacher, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And with all your mind, this is the first. This is the greatest commandment. The second is like it, love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the first thing that's interesting here, I grew up a good church Christ kid um, everything's important. Anything written in the Bible is important. And it's, it's just interesting note here, I would say, that when Jesus is asked, what is the most important? He, said, he didn't say, wait a second, everything is important in God's Word. He actually answered the question. And it didn't seem to set him back at all. Or he, he, yeah, number one, love God. Number two, love your neighbor. Um, so, there are a lot of important things in the Bible, but I think you can say, since Jesus said it, and we're disciples of Jesus, I think you can confidently say, nothing is more important than love. At least according to Jesus, right? I mean, he answered the question. In fact, he said, all of the other stuff in your Bible, everything else hangs on that. Hangs on that. So loving God with everything you've got, and then love... Loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Everything else hinges on those two love commandments. Now, obviously, we live in a culture, this is not new, by the way, but, but today, like every other day before this, uh, we're surrounded by a culture that um, has a lot to say about love, 
Novels are written about it. TV shows and movies are made about it. The top 40 songs are most all about it to some degree or another. Love. Seminars are conducted on it. Oprah has done hundreds of shows on it. Uh, it is a multi-billion dollar business as well. So there are economics involved in love. Um, but we, of course, want to go back to God, uh, back to his word, uh, the Bible, not the business. And uh, we want to learn about what it looks like to love. What does that mean? How do I do that? Um, now, I read this the other day. And uh, I liked it, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, children were asked to share their definition, some of them pretty young, to share their definition of love. And some of these are, are really good, um, pretty profound stuff that these kids came up with. So Rebecca, who's eight, uh, shared this definition. She said, the definition of love. When my grandmother got arthritis... She couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. I can argue with that. Nika, who's six years old, said, If you want to learn to love better, you should start with someone you hate. That's pretty good. Tommy, age six, wrote, love is, I, he probably didn't write this. Someone probably wrote down his answer, right? Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. And he's probably thinking about his grandparents, right? Cindy, eight, says, during my piano recital, I was on a stage and I was scared I looked at all the people watching me, and I saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that, and I wasn't scared anymore. Jessica said, eight years old, you really shouldn't say, I love you, unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. I like that. And then Billy, this kid is just four years old. He said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. That's good. And then one that really spoke to me, um, when someone loves you, yeah, that, that one just spe speaks to me. So, those comments actually get pretty close, I think, to the source of love. They actually get pretty close to the agape love that we see in the New Testament. Now, this idea, Gary Chapman did not invent this idea that there are different kinds of love or different expressions of love. It is a very ancient concept, uh, and it's actually a Bible concept. Uh, the funny thing is that this Bible idea can actually get lost in translation, literally lost in translation, from the original Greek as it's translated into our many English translations. Um, now, there are three words, and you may have heard this before, but it's a good place to start tonight about these different kind of love languages, expressions of love. There are three words in the original Greek, 
in the New Testament used to express this one word that we have in our English language, love. Uh, you know them as, or, or you may have heard them, phileo, eros, and agape. Phileo, eros, and agape. Phileo, friend to friend. Uh, brother to brother, sister to sister. Uh, it's the love you share with someone because you like them. Uh, or also a physical connection or a biological, you're my sister, you're my brother, uh, you're related to me, uh, connected as family members. At all, but, but yes, it includes also this kind of affinity. When we choose friends to hang out with, very often we're choosing friends based on phileo or brotherly love. Um, and, and then there's romantic love, eros, or sexual love, eros. Um, the English word erotic comes from this Greek word eros. Uh, sexual attraction, chemistry that pulls two people together. It is strong. Um, there is a, a chemical component to it. Uh, it is, it's a, it's a chemistry, it's an attraction. It can be almost overwhelming, or it can be overwhelming, uh, it can have sort of a, if you will, magical property to it, um, where you've seen this, I'm sure, where two people, a, a man and a woman, a boy and a girl, who are very different, who seem to have nothing in common, they end up together. They end up in love uh, because of this almost magical property that creates sort of a temporary blindness to the flaws of another person. And then there's agape. By the way, that blindness is only temporary. That's why you don't want anyone getting married after dating one week. Okay, I'm so in love. Well, let's wait, you know, a while and, and see. Because the, that physical attraction can blind for a time, but it doesn't blind for 40 years or 50 years. And then there's agape. Agape, you've heard, is the no strings attached. It is the unconditional love and this one is different. It's different, and it's divine. Now, perhaps we need to recapture this truth that we see in these different words used in the New Testament. Um, all three kinds of love are, are good, or they can be good. They can also be uh, misused, at least the first two kinds. Um, but we need to recapture that idea that love is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. There are different, distinct manifestations of love. There are different languages of love that different people use to express and to receive love from others. And the way that I feel, the way that I experience love may be different from the way you feel loved. And if I'm going to fulfill these commandments that Jesus gave me, that he said, number one, number two, if I'm going to live that out, then I need to get fluent, perhaps, in some love languages that I am not currently fluent in. Um, and so Jesus, we'll see this over the coming weeks, he, he adjusted how he demonstrated love 
from situation to situation, person to person, based on that individual, based on the circumstances they were encountering, Jesus did not love everyone in exactly the same way. Now, don't hear me wrong. He loved everyone. He loved everyone with the totality of his being. He did not express that in precisely the same way with precisely the same person because he knew this person needs this. This leper who hasn't been touched in decades, they need physical touch. They're starving for it. This other person who's been beat down by the religious authorities and elites around them and they need to be affirmed with words. They need to hear how much God loves them. This other one needs to be served. I need to wash their feet so they can experience the full measure of God's love. Anyway, Jesus loved people using these unique kinds of love languages. And we'll see that in the weeks to come as we begin this new series on the languages of love. And we'll get into that. But for tonight, I want to begin with a very simple the very biblical and the very profound idea that the purest translation of God's love for us is Jesus. In light of this close friendship that John the Apostle and Jesus shared, and the personal experience, very personal experience, a lot of time was spent together, Jesus and John, in light of that knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, laughing with Jesus, praying with Jesus, in light of that experience that John had with the physical embodiment of the love of God, Jesus Christ, um, John penned these words in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 16. John wrote this. He said... And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. There's a boy, that's a lot, right? A lot of freight right there. We know and we rely on the love God has for us. This is agape here. God is agape, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. Now, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, this is a whole sermon series, and I'm not going to do that tonight. Thank me later. But there is a lot you can unpack here, a lot of great stuff. But one thing I think you can see is process. John is not proclaiming we have arrived. Jesus had arrived. He was perfect. We rely on that, and we know what love is because of that. But we are becoming. We are, as he says, we are being made perfect. We are growing in this. 
Um, so that's it's process. It's going to take us some time. It's going to take us a while to grow and mature in this. And so just a, three, a few simple ideas, and I'll finish up so we can get out before hopefully the weather comes in. Um, one idea is this from this text, verse 19, would be this, that um, because of Jesus, because of the <coughs> unconditional love I've experienced from him, I know where the most undiluted, purest, and powerful source of love in the universe is. It's God. I know that. I've experienced that. I've seen that with my own eyes in Jesus Christ. I know the source is God. And as John wrote in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Our love, do you get it? Our love is only a response to that. We're not the initiator. We're only responding to how God has loved us. Everything I, I do, if it's good, everything I say, if it's good, if it's a blessing, um, anything good about me, about you, it's because we have been on the receiving end of this one-of-a-kind agape, this most pure and beautiful love that you could find anywhere. I've been loved by God, and I offer that to others. Now, the second thing, John reminds us, and this is important. It may sound like a little semantics game here, but I think if you think about it, you'll see it's important because it really separates God's love from some of the more polluted downstream versions that we experience. Here it goes. Um, John reminds us, this is number two, John reminds us that love isn't something God does but it is who God is. It's not what he does, it's who he is. Right? Verse 16, oft quoted, God is love. God is agape. His divine DNA, his essence, his nature, it is to love. He doesn't, God choose to turn love on like a spigot turn it off shut it off open it up shut it off open it up that's not how god loves god is love he is love 24 7 now i say that i think you're you're probably ahead of me at this point i say that because that may be sometimes how we love and that may be sometimes how we feel loved or feel used or manipulated by others, that they're turning it on, they're turning it off. Um, but that's not him. His nature is agape. It's always flowing out of him. Now we, you and I, we can be loving or unloving, depending on our mood, <laughs> depending on the day, depending on how someone else is treating us. Um, because at the core of who we are, it's not agape. It's not agape. It's not who we are. It's who he is. And that's why he is the prompter. He loves first. We respond to that. We grow into his nature. Um, so God is the source of love. It is who he is. 
It's not just what he says. It's not just how he feels on a particular day or what he does on a particular day. And then finally, the third thing that I think John gives us to consider is this. Um, I love because I know I'm loved by God. I love because I know I'm loved by God. Verse 16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. So he doesn't love me. And again, we could do a whole thing here on how the world loves or how we love sometimes and how this is different. But I think you can see right off the bat how different this is. He doesn't love me because of who I am. God loves me because of who he is. Okay? Um, He doesn't love me, praise God. He doesn't love me because I am lovable. Thank you, Jesus. He loves me because he has chosen me to be the object of his unconditional love. I can rely on that. I can rely on that. Agape love is the way God loves you. It is a different sort of love, a different order of love than what we see and we experience in the world, in our lives. So his love for me is not based on whether, his love for you, his love for us is not based on whether we are attractive. It's not based on whether we are funny or charming or smart or clever, his love for us is rooted in who he is. He is agape. He is love. I mean, how else can you explain a God who saw a world so broken and mired in sin and violence and have John 3.16? For God so loved the world. He so loved this place that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might be saved. So His love for us isn't based on any of those things that we do or say. It's based on who He is. And the cross then is that marker. It is that reminder of God's sacrificial agape love, that he doesn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. All the way up Calvary's hill. He saw me, he saw this place, but more specifically, he saw me in my sin-drenched, unlovely, selfish, superficial life. And he took all of that ugliness, all of that brokenness on himself and gave himself up for me, gave himself up for you. That's the cross, that's the gospel. And because of that cross, because of the good news there, we can't be any more forgiven than we are. Amen? I mean, God can't forgive you more than He forgives you right now. You can't be any more accepted than you are now. And because of the cross, you can't be any more treasured, any more valued than you. I mean, what more could He do than give His life up for you? And once we get wrapped up in that, in that agape love that swells around us from the source of pure love, it changes us. It can't help but change us. And so I think that's why John, who himself was a person like us, with foibles and weaknesses and failures like us, I think that's why John says, look, we rely on 
His love. We're not just trying to get better at figuring out how to love better. Okay, maybe that's part of it. But really, when you get down to it, we're relying on His love. The source. So my hope, my prayer is over the coming weeks, we can unpack these love languages a little bit more. And we're not just going to go from Gary Chapman's book. I'll borrow some things from that for sure, but really get into the Scriptures and see how we see Jesus living out what it looks like to love people in these distinct love languages. And hopefully that will change um, the way we think about loving others, help us to understand maybe some people in our lives who are different, who receive love and give love in a different way, speak different love languages than us. Uh, So hopefully this will help us to do better at what Jesus said is the most important thing, loving others. Let's bow our heads and we'll finish out with prayer here before we sing. God, you are love. You are agape. Uh, That's more than a, a slogan. That's more than a philosophy. That is, according to John, that really is who you are. And Father, we live in, in a world where we see love, but we see it most often in different ways. One person loves another because they do something. Or one person loves another person when they act a certain way. Or when they give gifts. Or when they do this or that or the other thing. We live in a world, God, where we see constant expressions of love that are more conditional, restricted, contractual. And we want to return to the source. We want, we want to return to you. And we want to be so wrapped up in you and how you love that we begin to love others the way you love us. And then, Jesus, as you've told us, the world will know that we are your disciples. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Let's be standing. Let's worship together. Yeah, as we sing, if you do need to take communion, it's been prepared and will be served to you in the fellowship hall, and you can exit as we sing this, uh, this final song. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul.